Miss Devlin, you are not dealing with a fool now. I am not one of your sell your soul for a nickel country bumpkins. <laughs> Try this. You send me back in time. Send me back to Cliffordville. But I want to look exactly as I did then. That's number one. Agreed. Number two. I want to have a memory of everything that's occurred in the last 50 years. I don't want that memory impaired one bit. Check again, Mr. Feathersmith. Number three, I want that town exactly as it was with the same people that I remember. All very easily arranged. Anything else? Number four, I want it to happen right away. Time is of absolutely no essence. You name the hour, that is the hour you shall have. Now, as to the price. Yes, Mr. Feathersmith, as to price. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. Welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And hey guys, it's Terry here. And it this feels so good to be back in the zone of twilightness. I know it's been a while and I thank you guys for your patience. Like just, you know, I, I moved locations. Uh, I uh, tapped Terry on the shoulder to help uh, lug a very problematic California King mattress uh, up a flight of stairs into my new house. So it's been a journey but I'm now able to record again. And now I have a bed and thanks to Terry for that. And I can breathe again now <laughs> Now that I'm at home and not carrying a giant bed. Yeah. I just, so everybody just California King mattresses are amazing until you have to move them places that aren't as wide as a California King mattress. So that's what I learned, but thankfully we, we got it in place and it wasn't destroyed. And yeah, anyway, I moved. I'm in a different location. So, um, yeah. And eventually one day, Terry and I'll be back person to person here, uh, recording, but for now we're still distant, but I got to see him for a brief moment. And I have to say that when I, when I saw Terry in person over the weekend, I just had to think to myself and as pretty a slice of peach pie as ever went on a hayride. And that's what I felt about him. So I just want you guys to know that's what I just, I was super happy. He was just a peach pie that ever happened on a hayride or whatever was said. Oh, you say that to all the mid 30 year old bearded men. It's, it's true. I mean, and one day I'm hoping to land one. Um, so <laughs> yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking about uh, season four, episode 14 of late. I think of Cliffordville. Um, before we do this though, I'm going to, I'm going to do a uh, drop some news and Terry doesn't know I was going to do this because we hadn't talked about four star recording. So, CBS All Access announced a season two of the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone is coming uh, June 25th, I believe. 
I'll double check that date. So season two is coming out that day. Uh, and it's going to all, all 10 episodes are going to be released once, which is different than they did last time. Um, so, uh, let's see here. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Terry right now, uh, with that coming out at the end of June, this episode, we only have four more of season four to go after this one that will put us towards the end of this month going into June with, I believe a week and week, two weeks between what say you to delaying going into season five of the original series and actually walking through season two of the Jordan Peele series week to week? That sounds pretty sweet. I would love to do that. That would be a nice uh, uh, little venture considering we're watching a lot of things that are like, uh, what, 50 years old at this point? The 55 years old? Yeah. I just think the timing of it actually lines up really well because we're wrapping up this season and then we'll have like a little like like a week or two, I believe. Like we're going to I hope hopefully have time to do a season four wrap up because I think that'd be important to come back to it and kind of talk about the season in full. And then I know with the the new season, the 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 2020 Twilight Zone being all dropped at once, I know people are going to binge that and that's fine. Um, I'm going to not. So I will like I would choose to watch it week. We'll, we'll do we'll do 10 weeks of it. I think that would be perfect. I think that'd be a lot of fun actually and not having to stress about trying to cover like the like season five and season two of the new series. Like that was when I did it previously, it was, you know, it was fun, but it was a lot of work. Um, and I also think that this might give an opportunity for people to, to, to kind of get a chance to get caught up on the new stuff too. Yeah. And it, I think there are a lot of people that are really a lot more versed in like, modern television that might be a little bit uh this might be a little bit more in their wheelhouse to get involved in watching and and also if since it would be exclusive to cbs all access if people were to sub in to watch season two of the twilight zone they would have access to season four of the original series which is also available on hulu but it's not on netflix as we've talked about previously so if this has been something that's been keeping you from like maybe checking out season four um, then, you know, and it's, especially since season two is going to drop all the same day, you know, get that free trial and, you know, you get like what, 30 days or something, smash them both and then move on, I guess. But, um, yeah, I just, I figured you'd be down for it, but I wanted to kind of, you know, just put you on the spot and just have you sweat for a second and be like, what's he going to ask me? You know, it's like, Hey Terry, do you want to watch more twilight zone? Whew. Huh, yeah, sure. That's, that's a good, that's an easy question. So. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 the real question is uh, how good are these episodes going to be, though? <laughs> so I don't know. The... We're watching season four of this this series. Who knows, right? So, um, <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think you've watched. Have you watched any of season one of the Peel stuff yet, or no? No, no, I have not. Unfortunately. Um. Well, we'll rectify that. Like, I mean, I don't know if you have time right now. You know, staying at home. <laughs> I don't know if you have the ability to watch some of it. Um, there's some good stuff in there. It's not all of them are great, but there's some really interesting ideas that may not always stick the landing, but there's a lot of fun to be had there too. Uh, there's an episode called the blue scorpion about a cursed handgun. That's a lot of fun. Like that's not, that sounds like a juxtaposition, but it has Chris O'Dowd in it and it's just a, just a fun episode. Um, there's one about a kid that becomes the president of the United States and, uh, it, um, it, it, you know, social commentary, it holds a mirror up to what may or may not be going on right now. Just throw it out there. Uh, and there's, there's, it's, there's, 
I, I'm happy that they're not having to try to stay in the mold of what people were expecting for the Twilight Zone. So even if I didn't like all the episodes, I appreciate that they're going to try something different because the Twilight Zone, as a concept, you know, Rod Serling had his opinion, but there was a lot of different writers that played in that playground. So I'm, I'm okay with Jordan Peele bringing a lot of different writers, a lot of different voices. So it's worth watching. Yeah, and at the very least, uh, I love the uh, the format of anthology. So, I mean, if one episode's bad, you have so many other episodes to look forward to. I mean, we even get that out of others. That's uh, true. Different series. And and the good news is too that um, Peel is he is in every episode. So, like as much as we miss it, we're missing Serling like being in the set and being in the episode. Aside from a cutaway. Like you're always wondering, like when when's Jordan Peele going to show up? It's like it's so great to see him. And the one thing he keeps consistent though is like the black suit with the white shirt and the tie. Like that's badass. Like it's it's yeah. It. I'm excited for season two, and it's coming at a good time. And I can't wait to to watch it with you and, and to watch it with everybody else and talk about it. So good. I'm glad that we got that out of the way. I was waiting because I wasn't expecting you to be like, Nope, we're not going to watch that. We're going to go. And now we're going to watch seasons one through three of monsters. And that's, that's that. That's what's going to happen after season four of the original twilight zone. I still would have been hooked. I would have been like, ah, let's go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yes. All right. All right. That bit of breaking news out of the way here. Uh, let's get into it. It's a season four episode. uh, Sorry. Season four, episode 14 of late. I think of Cliffordville. That's going to make a long hashtag when I post the episode. Air date was uh, April 11th, 1963. Number one film was Bye Bye Birdie, which I've not seen the film. I have seen the stage play, and it is a lot of fun. Uh, number one song is He's So Fine by the Chiffons. Um, the day before this episode aired on the 10th of April, an unknown gunman narrowly missed killing former U.S. Army General Edwin A. Walker, who had been working on his taxes at his home in Dallas, Texas. The would-be killer would later turn out to have been Lee Harvey Oswald. So, and he, the the the, the missed shot was from the same rifle that he would use to kill Kennedy. Um, that's I I didn't know that he had had a previous assassination attempt um, until I read the Stephen King book. Uh, was it um, uh, eleven twenty two sixty three? And mm-hmm. like that was a really tense moment too, because like the, the you know the main character is going back in time and trying to stop Oswald, but there's also some suspicion that. Um, there's, there's, there's some murkiness about whether he was the one that was the, like the attempted gunman for this shot. Um, and Stephen King plays it up and it's a really tense moment in the book. So I had not known that there was a previous attempt at assassination before Kennedy. Um, but yeah, that happened a day before this episode. Uh, uh, yeah, cool. That, that's <laughs> crazy. I, I did not know that he made some kind of other attempt. Yeah. Uh, uh, as far as my notes are considered the same day, um, the nuclear, uh, the U.S. nuclear submarine Thresher sank during sea travels 220 miles off the coast, east coast of uh, uh, Cape Cod, killing 122 U.S. Navy personnel and 17 civilians on board. Yeah, and it, so everybody was killed. And like the next day, which was the day this episode aired, the the Pentagon, sorry, the the U.S. Chief of Navy Operations, like they they sent out the, the press corps of the Pentagon. The Pentagon announced that that happened. Um, things I read about that sinking um, was that um, it was actually one of the fastest subs in the fleet at the time. So it was being used a lot for operations. So it may have been being pushed past its limit. 
Um, I didn't really get into why it sank. I just know that it was like one that was being used way too much. Um, it was then put, what was it? It was then put on what's called eternal patrol, which is what they call ships that don't come back. So it's not actually been declassed. Like that, not, it hasn't been decommissioned. It's still considered out there, which I think is kind of, kind of cool. Um, and then also that, that, that the type of sub that it was, the thresher became the class of that type of sub in honor of the name of the sub. So that's kind of cool too. That is pretty sweet. That's just, it just sounds sweet. Thresher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't want to mess with that. Um, so yeah, that's what I got for day and date. So let's just get into, um, to cast and crew here. Um, so uh, Terry, I'll let you, you jump off with this. All right. Sweet, so, pe- sweet peach pie or whatever it was there off a of hayride. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds kind of weird. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of, I don't know even how to take Let, it. Let's listen to that again. I, I, I just, I don't understand what he was going for with this. And as pretty a slice of peach pie as ever went on a hayride. Why would you take a slice of peach pie on a hayride? That's, I don't know. Like just, I mean, that does not seem like that would be a, a nice accommodation for a hayride. No, I, I wouldn't yeah. want to eat anything on a hayride because <laughs> the crap gets all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to eat this. Uh, this. Um, I'm going to eat this plate of spaghetti with a bunch of pasta sauce on this hayride. That's a good idea, you know. Like, <laughs> I'm going to eat, I'm gonna eat right, uh, so, uh, two dozen wings on this hayride. Sorry. Please go ahead. Yum. Um. Anyways, so uh, yeah. So our director of the episode is uh, David Lowe. Lol, uh, yeah, that sounds right. Um, this was his only uh, Twilight Zone episode, but he did uh, 21 episodes of Route 66, and then in the 70s, um, there was a huge spike in disaster films, and he did five of them: um, Horror at 37,000 Feet, The Runaway Train, Adventures of the Queen, SST, Death Flight, and The Condor, Airport 79. Yeah, a lot of disaster movies had like dates attached to them, but he did a lot of TV stuff. He only did two theatrical movies, um, but one of them was called nineteen. Well, sorry, it was from 1973 called that um, that man Bolt, and it starred Fred Williamson. And so, let me read to you the uh, the description of this film. To take a briefcase from Hong Kong to Mexico City via Los Angeles, is it necessary to call on that man Bolt? With the number of dangerous spies and gangsters who are after that briefcase, maybe Jefferson Bolt is not enough. You got Fred Williamson. That's more than enough. You know, like, but I, I feel like this was a black exploitation film that didn't do very well, but I kind of now want to see it. Like, that's a great name, and it's Fred Williamson. This just builds onto our collection of films that just sound so amazing, but I'm sure are just really goofy that we have to watch. Like, this, this sounds great. I want to yeah. see it. <laughs> So yeah, like I just, um, and it's weird to me that this was the only one that, uh, David Lowell, uh, rich directed because it's like this, like the directing wasn't bad in this episode. I don't, I mean, not that there's, I don't think there's like much bad in the episode. It's just normally you get like, there's not too many one-off directors, which I know we just had the one, um, was it a couple weeks ago, but yeah, I don't know why, why he didn't do more. Cause he did a lot of other TV stuff. Yeah. Um, and then uh, our writer on this one is kind of like a two-part credit here. Um, so uh, it was the original novella is by Malcolm Jameson, um, Jameson, uh, and it was rewritten by Rod Serling, so adapted. 
Yeah, so I did a little bit of a dive into Malcolm Ralph Jameson, and he had died in 45, so he didn't know about any of this. Uh, he commonly knows Malcolm Jameson. He was an American science fiction author. Um, he was an officer in the U.S. Navy, um, and he was active um, in American pulp magazines during the golden age of science fiction. Uh, he started writing after he had complications with throat cancer, so he couldn't be in the Navy as much. They just started writing more pulp and science fiction. Um so he actually was kind of, he wrote a lot of sci-fi that was like, like Navy stuff in space, which sounds like a weird thing. But then think about like every science fiction property that like, um, uh, like you use, um, Star Trek in terms of like how they deal with like the way the ships turn and everything, or the way that they address the different crew members. You see a lot of Navy stuff in there. Right. And then even in like the um, Battlestar Galactica, like the, the newer one, um, there, like a lot of it felt like the, when they were in the, um, the base of operations inside the Galactica, they didn't actually have like a window out. It acted much more like a submarine. So you could see a lot of his, like, I'm sure a lot of science fiction was influenced by his notion of like space Navy stuff. So that, I thought that was interesting. Uh, his first public published science fiction uh, story appeared in Aston Astonishing Science in 38. His story doubled and redoubled with the title of the story. Maybe the earliest work of fiction to feature a time loop. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, so he actually wrote a lot of like stuff that actually had some like interesting rich characters as well, which was not always a given for that time. Um, so the other thing I'll mention here too, and you're going to like this, uh, you're going to like this bit, Terry. Um, Alfred Bester described meeting Jameson in, in about 1939. Uh, Mort Wessinger introduced me to the informal, uh, to the informal lunch and gatherings of the working science fiction authors of the late thirties. Uh, Malcolm Jameson, author of Navy oriented space stories was, was there tall, gaunt, prematurely gray speaking in slow, heavy tones, probably cause he had difficulties with throat cancer, dick. All right. Um, <laughs> now and then he brought along his daughter, his, sorry, now and then he brought along his pretty daughter who turned everybody's head. That's the quote. <laughs> like, oh, this guy is big, tall, ashen-looking dude that uh, talks slow. Um, he had a hot daughter. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, way to stay professional about it. <laughs> yeah. She kept asking for bonbons. It was just weird. All right, so, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, like, so Sterling did, you know, uh, I'll get more into Blind Alley, which was the novella that, that this was based upon. We'll get more into that at the end. Uh, but yeah, let's get into the cast here. All right. So uh, our main actor is uh, Albert Salmon? Salmi? Salmi. Salmi. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he plays Feathersmith. Um, he did two other episodes, The Quality of Mercy and Execution. Um, uh, I, I, I've never seen Quality of Mercy, but Execution was pretty good. Pretty good. Sorry. Yeah, no execution. He's <laughs> uh, the one where he plays the the cowboy that was being brought back uh, from the past into the present by um, the professor from Gilligan's Island. Actually, uh, that was a fun episode. And then a quality of mercy. He was a guy that was stationed over um, oh in the Philippines. He was a, a member of the army, and he was taking um, orders from a young like a young guy who wanted to try to prove his worth. And it was played by. Um, Dean Stockwell, uh, who was just like, we need to be aggressive against the, 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 the Japanese troops here. Uh, and, um, yeah, so it's like, it's weird. So then Dean Stockwell's character actually ends up getting flipped 
uh, he ends up be- taking the, the place of other Japanese troops from earlier in the fight. And so he has, he has to learn about like, you know, how they're viewed. So it's weird that Albert Salmi kind of is in three episodes that all deal with time travel in a way. Like, it's just like, Hey, we need, we need a guy who can um, be kind of a dick and lick his lips a lot. And he's okay at time travel stories. Yeah. I guess that works. Uh, It was kind of his uh, pigeonhole. Um, And for everything else I have, he uh, did an episode of lost in space, uh, escape from the planet of the apes. And then uh, 44 episodes of uh, Petroselli. Uh, must have been some, maybe like a cop show. I, I didn't get a chance to look at it. I just noticed that it was like yeah. a long stint for him. And no. then he played a bit role in Caddyshack. Oh, I have to go back and find him. I love, I like Albert Salmi. Like he, you know, he, he, you, you hate him in this episode. That's the point, you know, and he's not a bad guy in a quality of mercy, but he, he is a bad guy in execution. So it's like, there's, this will be our last time seeing him in the series, which is unfortunate because I think he's an interesting actor. Uh, but you know, just, I, I like him. He just in this one though he exudes just you just want to punch him in the face the entire episode. I totally agree with that. Yeah. We'll get to that. But uh, so next we have uh, John Anderson. Uh, he plays the uh, uh, Dietrich. Uh, he did three other episodes: The Old Man in the Cave, uh, The Odyssey of Flight Thirty Three, and A uh, Passage for Trumpet. Yeah, uh, A Passage for Trumpet was a Jack Klugman episode, and he ends up. Uh, like speaking to the angel Gabriel, who is John Anderson, but Gabriel looks a lot like Abraham Lincoln. So I, you know, I called him Gabraham Lincoln at the time. So it took me a bit to, I was like that, that's Gabraham Lincoln. <laughs> we saw, um, yeah, he sounded like Robert stack in this episode to me. Like, as he was talking, I just like, only you can solve a mystery, you know? Which is kind of ironic. Cause I've been watching a lot of unsolved mysteries lately. So nice. I, I can see that. Are you hoping to solve one so that way you, you could um, like get your name out there and become like a private detective? Almost every one of them now is like solved to a, a, some some degree. <laughs> I, I don't, it's like update, update. I'm like, <laughs> I want to find out what happened, guys. But does it at least give you like some satisfaction? Where it's like, I knew it. I knew that person did that. Like, like because I know like the very first episode of Unsolved Mysteries, it was like a missing wife. And then the husband's like, I don't know. She just wanders away sometimes. I'm like, that guy killed her. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen that on forensic files pretty much, too. So I'm like, I don't know. She uh, just liked. She likes to get in front of trains. I wasn't going to tell her not to live her life. Like what? <laughs> but uh, otherwise, um, uh, uh, he did. Uh, <laughs> you threw me off track, man. Um, so, so John Anderson also did uh, uh, a spot in uh, Smokey and the Bandit 2. And then uh, one episode of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay. Sweet. So, And then uh, we got Wright King, which it's a fun name. I, I, that can't be a real name and just the way it's written like the way they spell it too but uh uh heck it uh i don't i can't say it like how uh uh albert was saying it yeah, in the episode but, but it's, it's heck it, like, yeah yeah he was saying like he was hacking something up yeah yeah but this thing about it, like right king is maybe he was in school they'd always like you know say his last name first right when they're doing roll call it'd be like king Wright. he'd be like i know i am <laughs> yeah. Uh so yeah, he plays Hackett. Um uh, one other episode and that was Shadow Play. Yeah, uh, awesome then, episode. 
otherwise. Uh, I didn't really know very much what he'd done, but uh, he did uh, 39 episodes of Johnny Jupiter. So must have been like a like a fun like sci-fi show that, that came that's out. That's a for sequel kids to Johnny Trump. Midnight. That don't that's not true. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah. we had uh, a guy Raymond uh, he plays Gibbons uh, only Twilight Zone appearance again uh, and uh, he appeared on the original Star Trek and that was it yeah I just I wrote my notes here I thought I recognized his face but I did not know anything he was part of I mean you know aside I wouldn't have recognized the episode of Star Trek he was in just because of him yeah and then this is where uh, we detour a little bit from where IMDb would have the next actor. But we put Julie Newmar next. Um, very noticeable uh, face. I mean, like, as soon as I saw her come on the screen, I was like, I know this woman. I was like. Yes, you do. Very, yeah. yeah, I was like, she's very, very beautiful. And I was like, where do I know her from? And so she plays uh, Miss Devlin in this episode. But she was also Catwoman on Batman. Yeah. Uh, so, um, a little bit about Julie Newmar. Uh, so yeah, two seasons of Batman as Catwoman. She wasn't the only woman to play that role, but come on, it's Julie Newmar. You just, you you know her as Catwoman and Eartha Kitt was Catwoman as well, but whatever. Uh, she did a lot of stage work prior to this. Um, I, um, I've, I've talked about this TV series previously, but before, actually she ended up being in a TV series after this episode called My Living Doll, which... I want to read to you the, the synopsis and you're going to tell me that that you're like, you're whatever you're going to call bullshit on it. And two, this would never exist today. Um, so the, the, the summary, this is on IMDb. So someone wrote the summary here. Uh, Rhoda is an extremely sexy young woman living with a womanizing air force shrink, Bob McDonald. What Bob knows and the rest of the world does not know is that Rhoda's real name is AF seven zero nine. And she's actually a sophisticated yet naive robot. Bob's job is to teach Rhoda how to be a perfect woman and keep her identity secret from the world, especially the lecherous neighbor, Peter. So, um, yeah, that only lasted one season. Uh, the main actor, Bob Cummings left the series early and then they ended up bringing in the neighbor, Peter to kind of like become the new caretaker of Rhoda, who is the sexy robot lady trying to become the perfect woman. Yeah, that's a thing. We talked, I think we talked about this show before. I think one of those main actors was yeah, on no, Bob Cummings. Was in, yeah. Um, I think, let me double check this. Bob Cummings sounds familiar. I think Robert Cummings was, yeah, I think they give me a second here. I, uh, we talked about him already, but he was captain James Embry. I actually, I've, he was in the season two, episode one, um, was it season two, episode one? No, no that's not right. Uh, it's um, yeah, season two, episode one. The King Nine will not return. That he was in that ep- he was in that episode. So um, yeah, and then I think I think the neighbor, um, the lecherous neighbor, <laughs> I think he was in. Uh, let's see here. Jack Mullaney, Mullaney, I think. Well, let me just double check here. I'm gonna real time, everybody. You're gonna appreciate this. Okay, maybe it wasn't him, but anyway, but yeah, there's there's been other connections to the Twilight Zone because of my living doll, so yeah, she was the lead in that. Well, I guess you know, well, you know, supposedly she's supposed to be the lead, right? Because she's the living doll. Yeah, uh, it would be like doing a series now called Real Doll. Like you don't want to do that. That would be a bad idea. Um, so anyway, uh, that's what she was in after this, 
in the 70s, uh, Numar received two U.S. patents for pantyhose and one for a brassiere. The pantyhose were described as having cheeky derriere relief, which that's what you want for, you know, anything around your, you know, butt, and promoted <laughs> under the name Nudmar, which I think is great. Um, the brassiere was described as nearly invisible and in the style of Marilyn Monroe. So good on her. She was an inventor. Um, she's still with us, by the way. I'm keep, I keep talking about her past tense. She's 86. She's still with us. Uh, and then the 80s, she made a shit ton of money in real estate. So she, like, you know, you know, hashtag girl boss, like was making money. Uh, and then, and the 1995 film, you, and I'm sure you've heard the title before, uh, to Wong Fu. Thanks for everything. Ju- Julie Newmar. Um, that's the film that has, um, Patrick, Patrick Swayze, Swayze and, uh, um, Wesley Snipes and, uh, um, shoot. John Leguizamo playing uh, drag queens. Yep. Yes. She actually makes a cameo towards the end of the film. So, Julie Newmar, like she is, but I, I hate that. Like every time you read about her, like she was tall and they always called her statue esque. Cause I don't think they had a way to describe like, Oh, she's attractive, but she doesn't fit the norms because she could probably dunk on most male actors, you know, like what? Um, no, just she is, she's gorgeous. And clearly she had, you know, a lot more like she did. She was more than just like a pretty face and a foil for Batman. And I'm, and she was wonderful in this episode and we needed more of her in this episode. Cause every time she was on screen, I was not only was I like, Hey, it's Julie Newmar. She was just great. I completely agree with you. Honestly, this she, again, we'll get more into it, but uh, she was what I really loved about this episode. Yeah. So I wanted to, cause it was the only episode that she's done at the twilight zone. So I wanted to make sure that we gave her her due. So yeah, Julie Newmar. Just you know, like I want to write her a fan letter now and be like, I love you, Julie Newmar. Like I know you're 86, but you know, like and I know times change, but you're amazing. Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah hashtag I love you. Um, <laughs> hashtag right, so, Newmar. Yeah. What? No, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Who else we have? So, so next we have Christine Burke. Uh, she plays Joanna. This, she had such a small little uh, spot in this mo- uh, this sh- this episode, and this was her first acting credit. And I didn't see anything after this that I had recognized. So, thanks. <laughs> and I, it's funny I didn't even write her down. <laughs> so that just tells you where I was at with her. Bon yeah, Bon. That she, yeah, Bon Bon. Mm, they're so good. <laughs> um, so next we have uh, John Harmon. Uh, he plays Clark. Uh, one other episode, The Dummy. Yeah. And then, um, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. What were you going to say? No, you're right. He was in The Dummy. And then the only other thing I have here to note, which is for you, and I wrote this down because I know there's a lot of love for this film. I've not seen it, but I want to guess I'm probably it's a goopy horror film. 1979's Microwave Massacre. There is a guy that wears the shirt. He's, he works for um, the Wasteland staff, and he wears a shirt every Wasteland I see him. And I'm like, I got to see this movie just because I see this dude with the shirt every single Wasteland. Yeah, I think um, either Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome um, re-released it recently, so you know they, they tricked it out. But I, I, I've heard of this film. I've not seen it. It, it sounds disgusting. But, I mean, it on purpose – you know, like it's about a guy microwaving his wife and realizing, hey, um, I like eating people. 
you know, and it just spirals out from there, you know, as you do, but I've not seen it. I just don't know. I don't know if like this might be a film that that's, I, I might be a little too old to, to like dig in, like no pun intended and, and really enjoy the goopiness of it. There's a certain threshold I have now where I'm like, I'm out. I don't know what it is. You know, I don't know. Maybe me, I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting too old, but there's times where I'm like, this is just squirmy and weird. I don't know if I like this or not. I mean, the campy movies I can watch, but there are some movies that I've watched um, to try to catch up with like uh, staples of the eighties that I had never seen like Madman and uh, um, the Prowler. I've recently caught those and they're not that good. I mean, like the Prowler <laughs> is like up on a pedestal for a lot of people. And I hate to say this. If anybody loves this movie, it's not that good. Thank God Tom Slovini did the effects for it because it's not that good otherwise, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, I, 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 otherwise I had, uh, uh John in, uh, some adventures of Superman episodes, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't see Superman. I went straight to microwave massacre. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, sorry. We, I have one, I have two more people left, so I don't know who you have left. Uh, I have Hugh Sanders next, uh, plays Grok. Kronk. 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 Yeah. <laughs> All I can think of is, uh, the tight end from, um, the Patriots. That's Gronk. Gronk yeah. But isn't, there wasn't Kronk the name of the, the, um, Patrick Warburton's character in Emperor's New Groove. Cause they made a sequel called Kronk's New Groove. I think it was direct to video. Oh. You're right. Yeah, dude. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, he did uh, two other episodes, um, uh, Judgment Night and The Jungle. Both really good. Yeah. Uh, and then I just because I went through and I'm like, normally I don't go back and take double notes on character. Sorry, actor we've seen previously, but two episodes of Hawaii and I got to mention that uh, much love there. And then the last person I have here is Mary Jackson is Miss Pepper. Um, only Twilight Zone appearance. I don't know if you caught that she was in Exorcist Part Three. She was the old lady that was crawling on the ceiling above. Um, oh, what's his name? Oh, shoot, the main actor in that, uh, Patton. What the George C. Scott? Um, there's a bit where he's like, like going into like the 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 mentally infirm part of a hospital, and you see like this lady crawling across the ceiling. That's her. Hmm. Cool. I, I unfortunately, that's one I haven't made it to yet. So. Oh, um, yeah, uh, you, Exodus three is a flawed movie. It's interesting. Um, it has one of the, oh, one of the best worst, like jump scares. And I tried to watch it with my wife a couple years ago. Cause we covered it on invasion, of the podcast, and she could see me like tightening up on the couch and like curling inward. Cause I knew it was coming because she saw me freaking out. It didn't bother her when it happened, but it still bothered me. <laughs> what had happened? Cause she's like, I knew something was happening. She's like, you don't normally react like that. I'm like, it was scary. You know, <laughs> like, so, um, it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah. It's, it's gotten a lot of love recently. Uh, I, it, I know that there was a, uh, Spring factory, uh, version that came out and they put all like extra little bells and whistles on it. And, um, I do need to see it. It just seemed like one of those ones where it's like, well, you've seen the original exorcist. How could it stand up? You know? And then I heard the second, the second installment is like not good at all, but I, I, I mean, I probably haven't even seen that movie since I was like 
10 or 12 years old or whatever. Well, the third one is actually written and directed by the author of The Exorcist, the book, William Peter Blady. So, and there's problems with the production, but it's much more in line with the the first film because the second one, The Heretic, he had nothing to do with in terms of like story or whatever. So it's it, but it's not a complete film. Like there's definitely um, not to, that's this is not this 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 episode, but uh, Father Karras, the actor the guy from the first uh-huh. film, they brought him back in for the third, the third movie, but he was such a, uh, raging alcoholic that they couldn't use a lot of stuff, um, for him. And it's like, and so the way they kind of work around it, it makes sense, but you can tell there's something missing in the movie, but the extra three is worth a watch for sure. But it has one of the, what well, has one of the, one of my favorite, just like, jump scares in the sense of like, you know, you're getting to a, a false sense, like you're lulled into something. And then when it hits, it's so sudden and just like, you. Like, I'm not going to give it away, but people should watch it. That's why I, I can't say. wait. Yeah. So yeah. All right. That's your, that's your cast and crew. Um, let's just get into what Sterling has to say about the episode. Witness a murder. The killer is Mr. William Feathersmith, a robber baron whose body composition is made up of a refrigeration plant covered by thick skin. In a moment, Mr. Feathersmith will proceed on his daily course of conquest and calumny with yet another business dealing. But this one will be one of those bizarre transactions that take place in an odd marketplace known as the Twilight Zone. Yeah, so uh, this starts off, we get uh, Dietrich entering um, uh, Feathersmith's, you know, you're going to hear this can't open. There we go. I, I was trying to hide it, but I now have a, a room that I recorded with high ceilings and everything echoes. So here's to you, everybody. All right. So, um, <laughs> um, cheers. cheers, you know, that's what's going to happen. And I, Hey, hey, just credit to me to hold off from opening it while Sterling was talking. Cause you gotta let the man talk. But, um, so we have uh, Dietrich entering into, um, Feathersmith's office, like his area. And there's a, like a nice camera turn when he's getting off the elevator, going down like this long hallway, narrow hallway, full of secretary's desks. And he goes to, you know, meet with Feathersmith. And as he goes in, like the secretary start all being like, Oh, here he goes. This is what he's, what he's going to do. He's going to offer him a cigar. And before he tears him apart and they kind of like, like do an impersonation of Feathersmith. And there's a nice cut of the one secretary being like, have a cigar to Feathersmith offering Dietrich a cigar, being like, have a cigar. I, I thought that was a slick moment. Yeah, it was a nice little transition. I like that. It was, uh, they know the spiel. Like he's it, almost like he's done this so many times that they can do the play by play without even knowing what's going on behind the door. Yeah. And it was a very, it was a very modern cut. Like I, I just, I feel like that cut was not, it, it's, 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 it's not aged and like it's still, I mean, it's aged well, I should say, cause it still feels very modern, but we get into, um, him basically Dietrich being like, okay, why'd you bring me here? And, and Feathersmith wants to like, he wants to go on and on about like, we've known each other for years and, you know, remember the first time you saw me, you said that you wanted to like someone like me around and, and Dietrich's like, you know, I've thought about that day a lot. I've regretted it ever since Dietrich is just so uh, such few words though. You can tell that he's just like, oh, can we be done? You've called me in here. I am here. My time is valuable. Can you please just get to your goddamn point? And you just see the weight of his frustration or not frustration, but just being so over Feathersmith, 
I thought that was like they both both actors really got across like their history really well in the sequence. Yeah, uh, uh, Dietrich is very stiff and very monotone, and you can just see that um, Feathersmith is he's winding up. You know, there's something brewing in the back of his teeth. You know, he's waiting to pounce on him. Yeah, smacking his lips. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, oh God, it's so disgusting. Um, yeah. But he's just like he, you know, just with everything that's played out to this moment, you know that. Feathersmith is a real son of a bitch and we're going to find out exactly why. Yeah. And it's just, it's seconds away. And he, he like basically Dietrich's just like, well, why, why am I here? Tell me. And he, he doesn't want to give, um, Feathersmith like the stage, but in order to find out what's going on, he has to let him like parade and like peacock, for like a moment. So then Feathersmith goes in this whole thing about like, I have all this empire, like, you know, steel, coal, plastics. I don't know that whatever he kept going into, you know, radios and hula hoops or whatever he was saying. And he's like, the one thing I've not had is a manufacturing and Dietrich's like, yeah, I know you keep trying to buy my company on the first Monday of every month. And he's like, yeah. Um, and basically he says, and I found out that you took out a $3 million loan payable upon request. And I've overpaid for that loan. And now I'm calling the, my, you know, I'm calling this dead end. Like, and he could just see that he's grinning, basically being like, I've got you. I finally got you. Um, you always think that you're better than me and above me, but I've bought out your loan and I want it paid right now. And, and Dietrich's like, if you do this, I am now bankrupt and destroyed. And he's, and basically Feathersmith doesn't give a shit. Like this is what, he, this is why he was looking at his chops and it is vicious. Yeah. He knows the end game is worth the, the bank that he just paid for that contract. And I'm, the company I just, uh, was working for more recently did something very similar about five years ago. It's, it's shisey and it happens constantly. And this is just a, a real life situation that's played out right in front of the viewer. And it's, it's kind of kind of sad actually it is and then we get like sterling's intro of like witness a murder you know it's like um i don't know where i would have wanted sterling to come in on this uh i think he should have grabbed a cigar and started smoking it but that probably would have been in in bad taste but no pun intended but his intro is really good and it's like i think about it it's because he wrote the episode so of course he already knows his work so he's going to write a good intro for it um, but after we get past the intro, Dietrich is, has to do, do like the green mile walk down the, like the lane of the secretaries and, um, Feathersmith calls like, like uses the intercom to talk to one of the secretaries and she's like, well, what would you like? And he just starts laughing and Dietrich has to hear him. Feathersmith just mocking and just enjoying the victory as Dietrich's taking this long walk to the elevator. And it's like, that is just if you already didn't like Feathersmith, now now you just hate him, right? Because he's spiking the ball like in front of the crowd. Like, yeah, it happened. I took out this dude. Y'all knew it was going to happen. Uh, have fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to not to use a sports analogy, it's it's a lot of a lot of the times in uh, in recent history when Pittsburgh would come to Cleveland. <laughs> And be like, oh, you're gonna do what? No, we're gonna we're gonna beat the tar out of you, and then also just let the like, and then just smile at the crowd while doing it. You know, like 
and I hate giving Pittsburgh that credit, but I feel like Feather Smith would be a Pittsburgh fan. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine it now. He's wearing a, a you know a Roethlisberger jersey to make it even worse. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's I'm sorry. It's a little local color for everybody there, but just, you know, you take what you can get. I just, you know, (laughs) insert insert your own sports teams. You know, there you go. Go back and just imagine what it is, you know, like. And what if, what if it's the Eagles? Yeah, he could be a Cowboys fan. Yeah, it could be a Cowboys fan, but it could be the Eagles and the Cowboys. It could be, you know, whatever. I don't know. Other other sports, you know, Um, cricket. No, that's not not whatever. Anyway, so um, we then get. um, we get later when if, uh, with Feathersmith in his office and he's drunk and the custodian comes in, Hecate comes in to clean up and um, he didn't realize that Feathersmith was still there, but Feathersmith is like, well, who are you? And he's like, but he keeps calling him Hecate because it's like he knows who he is, but he's like, tell me who you are. Like basically being like, I'm saying your name, but I still don't know who you are. And Hecate's like, I, you know, I've been here like, you know, I'm the custodian of these three floors, you know, and I've been here for like 30 plus years and um, and it becomes this whole moment of like uh, Feathersmith trying to like show him like how like how important he is, how how important Feathersmith is, and he keeps calling himself Genghis Khan and all these other things. Like it's you know you can sh- you can see how he only he only values other people's like um, view of him being the conqueror. Yeah, he, he he really he's belittling, um, you know, Hecate, and especially when he's like, "Who are you? What do you do here?" He's like, "Well, I'm the janitor of the top three floors." Wow, Hecate, janitor of the top three floors. You know, it's like it's just the the tone that he's using with him the entire time. It's like he just we want he personifies like the mega douche and like how he's <laughs> belittling him. He's like, he's like a Voltron, but like made of other douches, <laughs> <laughs> but you do, yeah. you do a pretty good feather Smith there. I like that. You're like, you know, of the top three floors. Oh my As God. I lick my it, lips. He was killing me. You know, like that's him licking his lips. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And then basically you get like, heck it's like saying, yeah, I've been here. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and Feathersmith's like, well, you, you and I have both been here for about the same amount of time and, you know, and then heck it re- reveals that he got a gold watch, you know, for his service and, and Feathersmith belittles that. But then he also reveals that he's like, you know, he starts talking about where he grew up, Cliffordville and about how, you know, it was better then because a man could do what he wanted. He could go to the moon if he willed it. I'm like, nah, I don't know. It's 1963. That didn't even happen yet. Then, like, whatever. Slow your roll there, Feather Feathersmith. Um, but he, basically, he keeps like pining for the old days of where if a man willed it, it would be. And then Hecate reveals that he grew up in Cliffordville. And uh, Feathersmith's like, well, that's you know, we have a lot in common. We grew up in Cliffordville. We put our pants on one leg at a time, and that's it. Like, dick. You know, whatever. Um, but yeah, we get the whole thing with him and Hecate to kind of just show like where both men are. And then for, for Feathersmith to start like having rose colored glasses about like back, back before he had conquered all, you know, and he even looks in the mirror and calls himself Alexander the great and Hecate like, you know, uses the quote of like, and he, and he weeps for there's no more worlds to conquer. And Feathersmith is like, what? He's like, Alexander the Great was just upset because he couldn't keep conquering. 
and Feathersmith kind of like that's where he's at right now is that he's gotten everything he wanted. Now there's no joy because he's won. Yeah, it's a it's a good parallel to to put into the context that we have for here. Um and that that's exactly what's going on because he's getting drunk. He he smashed at the glass that was on his desk too because he's got everything, but he it's like the thrill is gone. He's there's nothing that in, invokes uh, like a real uh, excitement for him anymore. It's just it's routine now. Yeah, and so then he you know he sends. Um, Hackett always way, and he's like, make sure you wind your watch and blah, 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 blah. And so we get um, Feathersmith leaving for the night, and he gets on the elevator, and he gets off of the 13th floor, which I thought was a nice touch. He's like, that's not where I wanted to get off at. It's like, well, you walked out of the elevator, you idiot. Um, and then he sees Devlin's Travel Service. And I like that the camera is now placed inside, and we see Julie uh, Newmar's character wearing this wonderful hat with a bunch of like different points on it which I thought was a funny gag until they revealed the true gag that was going on, which was even better. I like the way he just like throws open the door though. I don't know if you notice like how like violent, like he's just like, I own this place. Bang. I am in. Yeah. It, it like typical Dick form where he's, he's not only just being typical Feathersmith, but he's drunk now too. So yeah. he just, he barges in like, who are you? What is this? This is my building. I know what's going on here. Who are you? Yeah, and she just she has always like this small smile on her face the entire time. Um, and just like we just gotta again appreciate Julie Newmar. Goddamn. That's just gonna throw that out there. Like just so good. Uh, you know, but then as she's like just talking about like, oh no, no, I this is all for you, and we're gonna talk, and then um, before we get to like the commercial break, she takes off her hat and you realize that uh, the hat was like with all the little different points on it. were covering up the fact that she had horns, which I just thought was just like, it just, it was just, it was ridiculous enough that I loved it. But it's also weird to me that two episodes ago, was it two episodes ago? That we did printer's devil. It, it's it, recently we did that with um, Burgess Meredith being like the devil as well. Um, and like, wow, we're like, we're coming right back to this. Like there's another devil. Like, I didn't, is there a union? Like, I didn't know what happens here, but whatever. Anyway, so Feathersmith is like, Buh, a woman that's talking to me authoritatively and she's the devil. You know, that's, that's commercial break, but it was just, it's just funny. It's like, wow, we're uh, really digging into the devil as um, this agent of chaos this season, aren't we? Yeah. I really liked her playing the role. I think she was very, uh, cool and collective and uh, very intelligent. And she, she, she ran the conversation. Like she really owned the moment. Uh, and I, I do like the gag about the hat. If you look even closer, when she takes off the hat, you can actually see the two little holes yes. in the hat <laughs> for her spikes. Yeah. For her horns rather. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's funny. Um, but yeah, she, you're right. Like, that's a good point. She does control the entire conversation, even with her body language. Like, did you notice, like, as she's talking to him, like, she's taking, she has like a, like, is it, it's not tweed, whatever it is, like her, her top, top coat, she starts unbuttoning it and like, like taking it off and like talking to him and the way she positions her body, like she has his full attention and she is just like commanding everything, but it's like, she 
is it, there's just that power play going on and just the way that she carries herself. It's awesome. And it, this is a fun scene. Yeah. And, 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 and it's not over sexualized either. Um, you know, for a instant you thought maybe, okay, so she's going to take off her coat and now she's going to probably have something semi revealing or something like that. No, she's still straight business. Like she looks like a businesswoman when she takes that jacket off. There's no, there's no games here. She owns the 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 floor at this point. Yeah, and so like it comes back to him. Like uh, when we get to the after the commercial break, he's telling her about Cliffordville and about like you know how like his you know what it was back then. And then she, you know, she, she gets to like, she can accommodate. And this goes to like the beginning that we played here at the episode at the start of the episode where they start naming terms and conditions. But I like that. He was like, I'm not just some rube that will sell my soul for a nickel. And he goes on and on about it. And then, um, they named the conditions, which is, um, he wants, he, he wants to go back, uh, to, you know, before have his memory intact, he wants to have the town be exactly how it, like he remembered it. And he wants to, um, to look the age, right? Like, and he, it, so she's like, we could do all of that. And he's like, well, what's the price? And he's like, it must be for my soul. And this is the part of the episode that I did not see coming. And I thought was great. She's like, oh, the soul is usually part of this transaction. However, we already own that. And he's like flabbergasted and she goes over to the file cabinet, pulls out a file. It's just one file. It's his file. And then when she goes through explaining like all the different shitty things he's done as a business owner and resulting in like all the heartache and death because of his decision-making, like inadvertent, like meaning he may not have been physically aware of it, but his actions cost lives and broke, broke hearts and people. His face doesn't flinch at all, but she's like, yeah, we already own your soul. I did not see that coming. I thought that was, I thought that was awesome. It's, it's like a nice little difference in how this part would be depicted because it's almost like because of his actions, he gave up a little bit of the soul every time he did something like that. Oh yeah. And they, 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 they give the timeline of like, yeah, when you did this, we pretty much own you at this point, you know? So, so he's like, okay, well then what's the cost? And she's like, well, your bulk is like 36 million, blah, 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 something, something, something. I, I should have probably done the conversion. That's probably like a ridiculous amount of money right now. Um, but, uh, she's like, this is how much you are worth. Uh, we can do this. It's going to cost you that much money, give or take $1,400 and change. Um, and so she's like, I like, there's the brief bit of when she brings up, like she's doing the math and like the pen drops out of the sky. She just grabs it. I thought that was a wonderful little bit too. And she's like, here's the paperwork. Uh, and basically it's like you, you sign over your money, you get 1400 bucks. I send you back in time and you can start over again. And he, he kind of like gets upset about it. And she's like, but a man of your knowledge and like go, go getting this or whatever, $1,400 is nothing. You can, you know, it's, you can make it work. And he, and he convinces himself that he can, and he gets excited about it. Yeah. It like when he, he first hears it, it's like, well, yeah, that's not enough, but really when, in the essence, it's like it's couch change to him. But back then yeah. you could move worlds with that money. Yeah, and and the whole thing for him is that he keeps talking about how the the enjoyment for him, the kick was the, was the conquering, right? Was the gathering, was the getting. So, and fourteen hundred dollars would be enough. So, I also want to mention the thought that occurred to me here at this point was 
So let's say that the devil offers him the deal and he goes back and with 1400 bucks and he be, you know, becomes the monopoly man and, and just owns everything like all four railroads, both utilities, you know, all the blue and green properties, whatever ends up making like a shit ton more money than he had now. Right. Wouldn't like that would still also profit the devil because he's probably caught it causing like, like geometrically more heartache and lives lost. Right. So the devil wins. And then if it completely fails, they have 36 million that they can then use to like taunt other people. So the devil wins. I know that's not where the, the episode was going, but I'm like, huh, this is kind of like a no lose proposition for the devil, right? Like that's where I was thinking about it. It's a good point. I mean, it's, I think that's why the, the devil is such an easy player to uh, insert into storylines. Yeah, I just like the idea. It's like, well, no, no, no. We'll make you liquid. We'll take that money, and then at sixty three, we're gonna find we're gonna find ways to spend this thirty six million. <laughs> like, you know, um, you know, like I don't know. They're like, we're gonna start. Um, we're gonna start developing something called disco. People are gonna love it, and then get mad at it later. You know, whatever. Um, so anyway, um, yeah. So he's like, I want to leave now, and she's like, we'll make that happen. And there's a there's a gag where he leaves. Um, and he goes, turn around, the door's gone. I, I don't know what it is. I always love that gag of like, was it even there? Like <laughs> that type of thing. Uh, and then you do the, the brief bit where he gets on the elevator, it becomes an airplane. And then he looks at his watch and he's winding his watch to account for the time change going back to Indiana. And then suddenly like you hear that, that harp harp noise that you hear for all things fantastic in the twilight zone. He's like back in 1910 and now back in Cliffordville. And I don't know if we needed the airplane bit there, but whatever. Yeah, the harp, the, the harp thing for me was like a little bit better served in this episode than it had been in other episodes. Like it made more sense because it was more magical and other episodes That's we've fair. seen it or well, uh, heard it. It's like, Oh Jesus. It's not, they're not using this sound bit like the way that it should be right now i i have ptsd from that sound though where i'm like oh no what's going this is going to be a bad episode now isn't it <laughs> like, <laughs> but yeah and so he um he ends up so whenever that happens he finds he's on a train um and the conductor or like the the, the engineer is like next stop cliffordville and and uh, there's a funny inside joke where uh, he says the devil, you say like, you know, and which is not only commenting on this episode, but that was also the name, the original working title for the episode, the printer's devil from the short story, um, was called the devil you say. So Sterling brought that in as a joke, which I think was kind of funny. Um, I was kind of hoping that when he got off the train, that the uh, conductor would announce that the next stop was Willoughby. Um, that's just a joke from the first season because there's an episode called a stop on Willoughby where a guy gets on the train, goes back in the past over and over again to a town of Willoughby, Ohio. Um, so I was really hoping like next stop Willoughby and been like, don't go. It's a trap. Um, anyway, that, 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 that no, joke, I agree. Yeah, I yeah. agree about that. Like I was thinking about uh, the Willoughby thing the entire time. I was like, they're going to say it, right? They're going to say it. Okay. So you've seen a stop in Willoughby, correct? Yes. I would have been so good. Wouldn't it have been like next stop Willoughby? Like, oh shit, this is all connected. What was the name of the town that the guy went back to? And um, we just did that episode a couple episodes ago where he went back. It was it Indiana or Illinois where he's like, I need to go back to this one particular time and live back there because I know too much and I'm an asshole. What was the name of that town that he went oh, to? Oh, geez. 
I, I, I could find it in my notes, but it's like Downers Grove, which that is not right at all. That's that's something Downers else. Grove. Yeah, I don't know. That's from another <laughs> thing. Um, but whatever. Anyway, what is what is like Rod Serling's like you know fascination with like small town America? <laughs> like I get it. Like you know he you know he grew up in the same thing, and it's like and we get a lot of this. You can never go home again things, but it's like we're getting a lot of that this season where it's like what if we just went back to like. Americana like but like 1910 or like 1880 it's it's weird I think I think it's a a a good setting because you know like simpler times simpler places you can't have everything being in LA or or uh, New York because it's like so fast moving there isn't really and it's not a good space to tell the great American family storyline you know like where everybody's wholesome in that. No, that's fair. Yeah, no, you're right. It, like, it, but it's like the steam that just shows up a lot. Right. So, um, so yeah, so he ends up back in Cliffordville. He, you know, he gets off, he gets off the train. Um, yeah, sees he's back in time. Uh, and there's a whole bit where like a, 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 a horse and carriage, like splashes water on him. He's like, haven't you all heard of paved roads? It's like, I get that. Like, it's going to be a little jarring to go back in time, but, didn't you already live in this time? Didn't you realize like, I don't know. It just, I get that it's supposed to be establishing for the viewer that he's still thinking 1963, even though he knows he's back in 1910. Um, and then he goes over and like, he sees some flags on a building and there's somebody sleeping in a chair and he kicks the chair and he's like, Hey, what's up with those flags? What country is that? And the, and the person's like, those are, those, those aren't like country flags. Those are, um, what do you say? Um, Oh, not, wasn't cholera. What was it? Um, what was the, the plague? It was um, typhoid. Typhoid was the plague. Typhoid, yeah. yeah. He's like, that's a typhoid house. And he's like, oh, haven't they heard of like inoculate? Oh, that's right. That hasn't happened yet. So, yeah, I, whatever. So I, I like that that's a nice nod to show that for as much as he believes that he remembers everything that happened, he's his memory isn't serving him well within like the first two minutes of him already being back in time. Which makes sense because, like, even as I'm trying to, like, think about times and places, uh, you know, when, you know, even when I graduated high school, it seems so distant but so relevant. Um, and when I talk to people in conversations, like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And I'm like, no, dude, that didn't happen for, like, another four years. <laughs> it's like, for real? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just look at your cell phones now. Like, think of all like all the stuff that we have in cell phones. It wasn't even that long ago that we didn't have those abilities, and now they're so ingrained into our our daily lives. So it's like to think about not having that ability is so foreign. That's true. Like, um, there was a Michael Crichton book. Oh, what was it? Disclosure, I think that that it was dealing with all these things. But one of the one of the the concepts in it that stuck with me was that asking somebody like, do you remember what you were doing at the specific time? Like asking somebody like 10 years ago, depending upon like the anchors that they had in their lives. Like if I said to you, like, you know, what year did you graduate, graduate high school? You're going to have that immediately. But then if I ask you like, yeah, well, what happened? What happened? Like five years after that, you're going to be like, I don't know. Like it's going to get a little, it's going to get a little smudgy, you know? And like to be from 63 back to 1910. Yeah. Like, it, like he had this idea in his head already that, um, that he knew that there was some land outside of town that had oil 
and that once it was finally was able to get extracted, it was worth a lot of money. And he remembered that specifically. So he had that he had that in his back pocket going back in time. And he also believed he knew like the stock market, all this. But I don't know, man. Like ask me what I was doing like four years ago. I'd be like, I don't know. Like I have ideas, but I can't remember with exact clarity all the time. I ask me last week. I don't know. Like the fact that I recently moved into a house that helps me, but otherwise everything's a little fuzzy. No, it's, 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 it's an interesting concept because like even, um, like we, my wife and I had seen this little game that, uh, people were playing in, a uh, a movie where they, like they first met each other and they're like, what did you do? Or what was going on in this year? And they just name a year. And I was like, huh, that's an interesting game. Let's play that. We couldn't get far. We could not get far at all. Like we just named off a year and we're like, I have no idea what was going on that year. <laughs> I couldn't remember it. Right. So, so, I mean, I guess, you know, it's fair that uh, Feathersmith wouldn't remember typhoid, but it's again, for someone that was so adamant that he remembered everything and that, that Cliffordville was like the place to be to start over you already get these hints of that things are not going to go the way that he thinks. So I, I, I appreciate that. So then he ends up running again. He finds, um, Oh, what's his name? Um, Sam, the Eagle. That's not that guy's name. What is it? Uh, uh, Dietrich. He looks like Sam, the Eagle. Um, he finds him in the road and he's like, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> he does. Right. He looks a little bit like Sam, the Eagle. Um, yes, he does. Yeah. Um, so he's like, Oh, like fancy, you know, like me and you. And the guy's like, he's like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm, I'm at a loss. I don't know who you are. And there's the brief bit where feather Feathersmith like bites the edge of the cigar. Cause he knows that Dietrich hates that as a habit. And he does it right in front of him. It's like, this is his first time meeting him, but he, he just remembers him. He's like, ah, you know, like, you know, like basically being like, nice to meet you. You know, we'll have many things to talk about soon. Uh, and that's it. Right. So then he, so then we have Feathersmith going off to try to find um, the the person in town that would know who owns the land that he wants to buy. And um, there's just more evidence of him being an overconfident son of a bitch talking down to this guy and trying to be like a bull in a china shop the entire time. And it's an entertaining segment, but it, it, it does not make you feel... You're supposed to not like Feathersmith at all during this, this whole thing. And it just you see why. He's just... Ugh, he's just frustrating. It's just like it's compounding a situation that you already know enough about. Yeah. And like him being a complete ass to uh, Gibbons, I think it Gibbons, is. Gibbons, yeah, point. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, it's like it, you know, he's a scumbag already. So it's like, I don't know. It's, it, it's almost like unnecessary chewing the scene, but I, I guess it, it makes sense too at the same point. So I don't know. It was like, it was rough to watch. I, honestly, every time that I saw Feathersmith on screen, it was rough for me to watch. So. <laughs> well, I mean, it's supposed to show like the pride before the fall where he's like, I got this. I know what's going on. I'm going to, I'm going to haggle the shit out of this guy to get like a low dollar per acre on this land that I know is going to be worth like, you know, a gazillion dollars or whatever. So then mm-hmm. he, um, he haggles the price down to a dollar an acre. And then, uh, there's the bit where Gibbons goes to hand him like offer his hand as like a handshake part of the deal. And the, then Feathersmith like puts his hat neck and Gibbons hand, which is funny. It, it is, it is actually funny. And then Feathersmith goes over to like grab like, like a drink off of like a uh, Gibbons bar. And he's like, do you mind? And Gibbons like, no, it's perfectly fine. Whatever. 
And then Feathersmith is like, oh, I know you have a daughter, which we didn't even talk about the whole thing with Devlin, uh, where part of the deal was. She's like, I'll sweeten the pot. That that lady you were talking about previously that you kind of like had a thing for, but you were focused on your business. I can throw her in on the deal. And he was like, no, I will earn it. That was a big deal, that part of that conversation. But he talks to Gibbons. He's like, you have a daughter, right? And he's like, yeah. He's like, uh, and that, that's where you get the, the whole peach pie uh, comment from. And and Gibbons is like, I think you're insulting me. He's like, no, I, I'm a man that I know what I want. And I want to meet your daughter. And then we get, like again, uh, credit to the director. Like some of the timing of the cuts, too. I mean, I know there's an editor involved. But like it's just the beats in this work pretty well. Because we meet the daughter. And it's, it's the only time we ever see Feathersmith really like like until until everything falls apart for him spoiler we don't really ever see him on the back foot until this moment and he's just completely out of sorts dealing with this tornado of a person that's eating bonbons and will not shut up and has clearly a unibrow and a mustache <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not good, like, right? But she's just going on and on about, like, finally, we have a, a good man in the house, and all oh, this bonbon's amazing. And then there's, there's the bit where she talks about how she can sing, and she goes, like, playing the piano, and then Feathersmith leans over, and he's like, uh, you don't happen to have another daughter, do you? <laughs> it's a good line, just the way uh, Albert Salmi plays that. It's actually pretty, pretty great. Like, uh, he's just, it, it, yeah. It's very reminiscent of uh, Cinderella when uh, <laughs> the guy comes to meet the the daughters to try the, the to try on the glass slipper, and he meets the two horrific stepdaughters that are, are yeah. uh, that are just terrible. He's like, uh, not these ones, you know. Where's the where's the the anorexic girl that is scrubbing the floors over here? Anyway, so um, so. Later, um, we get the bit where Feathersmith meets Gibbons and Dietrich in the bar to like hand over the deeds, and he cannot wait, cannot wait to tell them how he supposedly raked them, like you know, skin the skinners. And he's like, "Oh, I had a guy come out and examine the soil, and I know that there's oil down there, and you know all this stuff." And then they're like, "Oh," and like they're not reacting, and they're like, "Yeah, that's what we we found out like four years ago." And he's like, "What do you mean four years ago?" And they're like, we know there's oil there, but 6,000 feet below the surface. And he's like, and, and uh, Feathersmith's like, well, we can drill it out. And they're like, well, you, sir, if you could figure out a drill that can go that far, that's good on you. <laughs> you know. But they basically, they knew that they were, they were selling him land that he couldn't utilize. And, and Feathersmith realized that the oil would not be recoverable until 37. So 27 years, sorry, 17 no, 27 years after where he's at right now, right? 27? Yeah. Well, anyway, so 1910, 1937, that's 27 years. My math's okay, right? Yes. Okay. Who knows? Um, and then they basically laugh him out of the bar because he's like, I'm not feeling well. It's like, yeah, you must have been something you ate, like crow, and they laugh him out of the bar. So this becomes like the very quick and sudden downfall of Feathersmith trying to convince everybody just to listen to him. I don't know if we want to talk about the whole bit with the mechanics. It's it's funny, but he just goes around trying to convince the world that he knows what's going to happen and no one's listening to him. It just seems like he's like a pyramid schemer at this point. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, so the oil isn't going to work. So how how do I get above water now? Well, then I'll just go to the logo like 
engineers and and you know sell the idea like i got the i got the idea all you have to do is do all the rest of the yeah. work i'll give you it's it's an electric starter you just figure here concept boom done that'd be like me going on shark tank be like all right paul what's your idea teleporters yeah and like how do you how do you want to do that i don't know you're the money people i just i want to teleport shit boom i'm out fund me <laughs> like it would be like <laughs> you know like self-cleaning socks there you go that's another idea just think about it you know like yeah. um Hydra, hydrogen powered engines yeah, how about yeah, that? Yeah. Let's like get that uh, um like you know uh, self-replicating cheese. That's an idea. Just make it happen. It makes $200 million. I'm out. Like, you know, like that's where he's at with all this, you know, like never ending cheese whiz. It will make a million dollars, you know, but, um, so yeah. And I like that. Uh, like, yeah, the, one of the mechanics is like, you know, like, Oh, if you could bring me a self, like, what was it? A, a perpetual motion machine. That'd be great. And they laugh him out. And the one guy's like, what's his name? Feather, feather, something. He's like featherhead. And so then this becomes, a this whole like montage of Feathersmith trying to convince people that he knows what's coming. Cause he does, but he is a guy that he, he's starting to, to realize that without, without the heft of money and position, no one's going to listen to you. And he keeps getting laughed out of every situation that he's in. And I love that the, the camera keeps doing these tilting Dutch angles the entire time, showing him spinning out of control. It's a fun segment. Well, ironically enough though, it seems that, that it's a, like a transverse of like where he was, you know, he had all the money so he can make so many things happen for a minute there. He had some money, but even if he had all the money in the world, no one could, bring the concept to reality like he's bringing all of these ideas to them but there's no way to feasibly make them happen well, like not yeah. at least not at this time period well because he mentions like radio and television and airplanes and all this stuff and it's like yeah it would be like if i went back to 1910 and be like hey guys you know what would be really awesome to invent the internet they'd be like how do you make that i'm like i don't know tubes like i don't like where would i come up with like they're like you and I both live in this world in which there's so many daily conveniences that we know how they operate, but we don't know how to make them. You know, it'd just be like, Hey, you know, it'd be great. Like, um, smartphones. What's that mean? I don't know. It's a square that you watch cats on. They'd be like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I'm like, it's a million dollar idea. Make it happen. You know, like, well, at this point, the aliens haven't visited us yet. So we don't have this technology. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, just go back in time and be like, guys, you got an idea for a snack. It's called bugles and you could put them on your fingers and make them look like claws. Like, how are you going to make them? I'm like, I don't know. You figure it out, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, he just goes around and, uh, <laughs> pitches all these ideas. It doesn't go well. Um, they're like, what if we had a cracker that had cheese in it? And we called it a combo. How are we going to make it? I don't know. I'm just the idea, man. I guess I'm just hungry and I want snack food right now, but whatever. Anyway. So, um, <laughs> You know, what if we put a hot dog in batter and then deep fry it, you know? Um, so uh, he ends up like, I like how like just utterly wrecked as an individual he is by the time he goes to the storefront and he's just like, he sees a storefront with like these different window, like with like mannequins with like wearing nice hats and things. And he's like, just like babbling. And then we get this nice shot of, uh, a Julie Newmar's like face as uh, Ms. Devlin. And she just turns and starts like laughing at him. 
and he goes running down a dark alley. And did you notice the the crate he runs into? I don't know if you happen to notice that or not. The crates, yeah, the crates are actually from the last episode. <laughs> I know, I know that wasn't on purpose, but I like the idea of continuity. It's like, ah, oh, Jack the Ripper will help me, you know. Like, um, but yeah, it's it, yeah, they're the crates that were in the basement in the new exhibit. So I thought that was a nice touch. Um, I mean, I know, I know that wasn't to like point towards the other episodes. I wanted to point towards the other episodes. So um, he ends up telling her, like, you know, like this isn't right. Nothing went right, and. I'll give credit to Julie Newmar, her performance here, where she's basically being like, you told me what you wanted. And she's basically saying like, there's the shit between the lines and also the fine print that you didn't consider. And there is like this, um, just utter disgust that bubbles up in her talking about him. And then she has to tramp it back down and then like, kind of like laugh it off. It's a really cool performance. Oh yeah. I love it too. Cause like, she's like gritting her teeth at some points when she's talking to him as well, where it's like, it's almost like in a disgust kind of stance where it's like, you knew you, this is the type of person you were and you thought that you could get one more over on people, but no, no, nah, you just didn't play your cards. Right. Yeah. And, um, so, and, and when he's asking like, well, what about the girl? And it's like, well, you know, like you didn't specify. And then it's like, he's like, and there's, the, there's the thing thrown in there about like, oh, you know, I'm a 70 year old man. And I like, I look like a 30 year old. It's like, you only said you wanted to look like a 30 year old. It was never implied that he was like an elderly person back in time, but whatever, I'll, I'll let it go. Uh, but basically she's just saying that like you, it was like the bit with, um, with that treehouse of terror with the Simpsons where they had the monkey's paw and Homer like used the third wish for a Turkey sandwich. But he was like, no zombie turkeys and like nothing possessed and cursed, just a regular Turkey sandwich. And then he goes to eat it and he's like, this is pretty good. It's a little dry. It's a little dry. Like that was like, that was the one thing he didn't count on was that the Turkey sandwich would be dry. So that's kind of like this where it's like, no, 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 no. You said what you wanted, but you didn't say you didn't think it through. I thought that I thought that was entertaining. Yeah, like there's a caveat to whatever is going to happen, of course. Yeah. So then he's like, "I want to go back to 63," and she's like, "Well, we can do that." And she's like, "Based upon the past 24 hours, now basically being like whatever the trajectory is from what you did now, I can get you back to 63, but there's a surcharge." He's like, "Surcharge? Like forty dollars?" And he's like, "I don't have any money." And she's like, "Well, it seems like you do have some things to negotiate, meaning the titles that he had to the acreage." Uh, and, and she said there'd be a train coming at midnight and then you hear the train in the distance and he's like, well, what do I do? She's like, you have like 10 seconds to sell this you know, land and make a deal. So he just hauls ass out into the street, find somebody. It's actually Hecate. And he's like, just take it. It's a good deal. The $40, which I'm thinking, how does Hecate have $40 on him? We don't get over that. Whatever. It's fine. He's too busy twisting his ear. We don't know. Um, but then we find out like, what happens in the new 63 with him, like selling the, the, the deed to that land. And we get a reversal of fortune where he is now the janitor. Hecate is the guy that's been, you know, the one in the building forever. And we get the whole thing of basically like, you know, you, you get the, you get the notion that like Feathersmith is actually, he knows what he was. Like, I, I still get the notion that he remembers everything. Um, but he's humbled, humbled down 
as all get out because where else are you going to go? <laughs> you know, he's the general of the top three floors. He has nothing to say anymore. He can't, he can't talk shit to anybody. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a nice little like reversal that I honestly, I, I thought was kind of fun. Um, I thought that was a really interesting little take on the end, but I, I again, and I had, I have been holding back on saying this, like as much as we, were supposed to dislike Feathersmith. His overacting of this character really was like excruciating for me in every scene that he was in. Like the smacking of the lips, the uh, the way he would emphasize certain words and that. It was just, I don't know. It was like he was a cartoon character to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fair. I, I, I liked it. It's just because... <laughs> You, he was so over the top that you knew it was not a matter of if, but when like shit would turn sideways for him. Like, and whenever he got completely out of sorts, like he, I think that's whenever like we saw like Albert um, Salmonet's best just being like, just distraught. I like that. But I, 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 I agree with you. It didn't, it didn't hit me the same way. So I'll just say that. Um, but yeah, we just learned that he's a janitor now and heck it is, is like basically like the same dismissive son of a bitch that Feathersmith was. And that's your, that's your episode. Um, yeah, it like there, this one doesn't feel as poorly paced as some of the other ones of the season, but it does definitely feel overstuffed. I'll, I'll agree with that. I, I think that there was not, it wasn't like so much of padding as much as like, um, th- like the scenes were, were there and like, you can get enough out of them. Um, and I don't, I don't know. It's it just, it was just, it felt like it was a little drawn out, but I don't think that there was extra scenes stuffed in there to make anything feel like it needed to be longer. Yeah, that's fair. I don't really know what exactly you take out, but whatever, you know, so, um, all right. Uh, did you have any other notes about the episode? Cause I have like, I have one bit of trivia uh, uh, that I'll get into and then, um, actually one and a half bits of trivia and then we'll wrap it up here. Well, one thing that I noticed at least, um, from this, uh, season was, uh, I believe this was the first intro from Serling where he was sitting down and having a cigarette at the same time. Th- that's true. He was in a different position. So I don't know if he was a tired from the rest of the day of shooting intros, but he did seem a little more relaxed, but again, this was his work. So I think he knew how he wanted to approach it. So I, I, I think this is one of his stronger intros to an episode this season. Yeah. It didn't feel, uh, as, uh, as confusing as some of them have been either. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. So, um, all right. So Albert Salmi couldn't laugh convincingly on cue. So the whole bit, whenever um, Dietrich's walking out of the office and you have over the telecom, uh, that's somebody else because <laughs> they couldn't get him to laugh right. Because he was like, they're like Albert laughing. He's like, <laughs> it's like this whole thing of like, you can't laugh. What is wrong with you? So I thought that was funny because uh, then even later in the bar, whenever he's trying to like get one over on the guys, like if you listen carefully, that's not him. <laughs> but whatever, like for someone that was so over the top, you think that like be able to laugh like an asshole would be like, you know, second nature considering every, every other way he carried himself. But I thought that was funny. Um, 
so in regards to the story Blind Alley, uh, the big thing was um, whenever the the gentleman made the deal with the devil, it was made more um, it was more prominent that he would uh, go back in time and look younger, but it was made pretty apparent that he was still the same age as he was when we, when he went back. And so he actually ended up being like running into the problems of like 1910 and all of the shit that was going on because, um, actually I take this back. It was set in 42. He goes back to 1910. Like, you know, they mentioned typhoid briefly in the episode, but like basically like just existing and also being like a 70 year old man and a 30 year old's body. Um, like the appearance of a 30 year old basically caused him to just like basically collapse and die because he's just an old man that went back in time to a worse time. So that was the big difference between the novella and this episode that we got. That would have been, that would have been interesting as, as a storyline, but for a twilight zone storyline, I, I like what they did in adapting it. Yeah, I, I think I think Serling did pretty good. I don't know if he needed to mention the bit at the end with Devlin, but whatever, it is what it is. It was just a little further turning of the screw. Um, but yeah, I, um, this was I I was worried about this episode because I'm like, oh shit, it's another one of those you go you can't go back home again ones. Which I'm not saying that those aren't worth aren't without merit. I just feel like we've been dealing with this kind of like thing a little bit, right? Like we just dealt with it with, um, uh, whatever the one was, um, no time like the past. We just dealt with that. Uh, we dealt with a little bit about, um, the peaceful Valley one, because even though it didn't go back in time, he went back to a simpler time that everybody was trying to keep everything simple because of the technology they were holding in place. Like there's, there's a lot of this, like looking backwards, that feels like it permeates a lot of the season. And I don't know why that is. Uh, and this has been a theme that's shown up in like walking distance. Um, uh, but what else I had you watch a world of difference. Like that wasn't time travel, but it was like, you know, like there's, there's things like there's always this, like looking backwards, like, and it's a theme that shows up over and over and over again. Um, and this is just a different shade of it, I guess, but it wasn't bad. It's just, I feel like we've, we have run over the, yeah, things aren't like you remembered them because they, they, they existed to you. Then you had your interpretation of them then, and you have grown and you have changed for better or for worse. And when you go back to that, it's going to get weird. That's something I feel like we've, we've seen a, a lot on the show and I'm hoping that maybe, maybe we don't get a lot of that going forward, but I'm going to guess we are. I think it's a strong possibility at this point considering. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's my thoughts on this. Uh, like any other thoughts? I know I mentioned this before. Any other thoughts before we get to the twist? No, I I, I actually thought this was a decent blend of the the devil playing in into it, and uh, you know the the douchebag getting his just desserts. Uh, I th- I th- I think it was a really complex but uh, very linear storyline, which was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So all right, uh, twist. Um, I'm going to give it like the, the, the asshole, you know, like turnabout's fair play. He ends up like getting reversed with the janitor. Doesn't surprise me whatsoever. I'm just going to give it a three just based upon the fact that the soul wasn't the thing that was the bargain. It was the money. I don't know what it is about that, but that tickles me because I wasn't expecting that. 
So I'm going to give it a three because it was, it, it raised what I thought, like from the beginning, it's like, oh, you're just going to go back. It's like, it's not going to go well. Seen that a hundred times. I didn't see that wrinkle coming. No, that that's a good, that's a good one. Uh, I, I think there are a few different types of twists in this. Um, for the, for Feather Smith really getting turned on his head, I, I would give that like a one or a two. Yeah. Like it's it's not really too much out of the question of like it would have been that way, but going into the past and knowing that the complexity of how he wanted certain things to turn out, I give that a three. I think that's pretty interesting. I think that was good writing. Um, because he remembers the conceptual idea of like these things happen, but we don't have the technology for them. Yeah. And now I can't get from A to B because we don't, we're not there. And I can't quite remember when we, when we would at it. <laughs> right. No, you're right. That's, that's a good call too. So, all right. Um, I think that's going to do it for of late. I think of Cliffordville, um, of Cliffordville. I, I will think no more. All right. So I hope you guys, Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. Um, you you guys can find us on Facebook at Strange Highways Podcast. Uh, you can email us at Strange Highways Podcast uh, at gmail.com. Wherever you get your podcast, whether it be Podbean, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, uh, you know, Stitcher, um, Bucket of Pods, that's not a thing. I don't know. Um, you know, wherever, um, you know. Just, curbside delivery yeah curbside delivery you guys should realize that like we are free to for curbside delivery so wherever you find your podcasts uh like rate and review us like, like if you if you enjoy our conversation and you enjoy the twilight zone uh let us know how you feel about it and also to others because again uh, i've said this over and over again this has been a lot of fun and then also now knowing that we're going to be diving headfirst into season two of the 20, you know, the 2020 CBS all access twilight zone, all the more reason to get people excited because right now people are stuck in their houses and they need content. And I'm going to guess that's going to get like gobbled up quickly. So if people are watching twilight zone, why not join the conversation? I think that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. I I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, uh, I hope you guys have missed us as much as we've missed putting out content and uh, us diving into the episodes together and that because it's been a little too long, Paul. A little too I, long. I know. I know. It was it was my fault getting a house. So I'm sorry, everybody. Um, I apologize for trying to do better for myself. I'm sorry, Terry, for doing better for myself. Don't do it again. <laughs> Like in all seriousness, don't do it again. Oh no, 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 no. Um, I'm thinking about taking the mattress and moving it downstairs. Could you help me with that? That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. I'll throw it out your window. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That was, that was a thing. So, all right. Um, so next episode we're going to be covering is another long title. <clears throat> it is the incredible world of Horace Ford. Something about all that does not ring good for me, but I'll read, I'll read uh, Sterling's intro here. On our next excursion to the Twilight Zone, we are we borrow an imposing array of talent and call on the services of a distinguished author named Reginald Rose and some exceptionally fine acting talent in the persons of Mr. Pat Hingle, Ms. Nan Martin, and Ms. Ruth Weiss. 
The apprehensible, apprehensible story is called The Incredible World of Horace Ford, and it's an incredible world indeed. And if people know the name Pat Hingle, it's because he was Commissioner Gordon, I think, in the Tim Burton Batman movies. So, all right. Yeah. We're going to get into this. Whatever the world of Horace Ford is, it's going to be incredible. I'm looking forward to it. I, 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 we're back at uh, full steam here, guys. So yes. this is going to be a fun ride again. All right. So that's going to do it for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. And in the meantime, um, don't make deals with the devil unless it's Julie Newmar. And then I'll make deals all the time. And I'll probably see you guys on Facebook again soon. Wink. And as pretty a slice of peach pie as ever went on a hayride. I just adore the ocean. I'm the best swimmer in my class, darling. Have another bun bun. No, thank you. <laughs> They're goody goody.